All right, everybody, welcome to another episode of React Roundup. My name is TJ Van Toll, and with me on the panel today, we've got Paige Niedringhaus. Hey, everybody. We've got Carl Mangazi. Hey. Zane Sajad. Hey, everyone. And our special guest today is Mark Erickson. Mark, why don't you kick things off? Tell us who you are, why you're famous, all that good sort of stuff. I still question whether I'm famous, and I still question the whole idea that people are actually interested in the fact that I have something to say, but apparently it's a thing. So, <laughs> hi, I'm Mark Erickson. You may know me as that guy with the Simpsons avatar. You may know me as a primary maintainer of Redux. I have been not entirely jokingly referred to as tech support for the React community, and I will generally answer questions about React and Redux anywhere there is a text box on the internet. Well, cool. So maybe we could start by, like, how did you get into all of this? Like, is your background, like, how did you find your way into, like, the React and the Redux world? Entirely by accident. I started doing some JavaScript at my day job background 2013 or so. Uh, prior to that, most of my experience was in desktop development. And I got into converting some recently written jQuery code into Backbone. And that was where I kind of started like for the first time to really figure out that like your UI should be driven by your data instead of like saying, well, my, my data is whatever 10 items happen to be in this list box control or something. And around 2015, I was looking at the possibility of trying to migrate uh, an existing application over to a, a more modern JavaScript approach. And I'd been hearing about this whole React thing for a while. And I was, I'd, I'd run into a lot of the limits of what you could do with Backbone at the time. And I decided to try out React. And it was right at the time that Redux came out. So at the time, like, like we'd had a whole year of what I, what I now refer to as the flux wars. Like hundreds of different libraries based on Facebook's flux architecture idea were coming out. And like I think one of the most popular ones at the time was called Alt. Most of them had names that were jokes based off Back to the Future. <laughs> and so I, I just started doing my usual thing of reading blog posts and trying to learn... And in the process, I found a set of chat channels called Reactiflux, which at the time was still hosted on Slack. And then it moved to Discord a few months later. So I, I just started kind of working in there and watching other people discuss these things. And eventually it got to the point where I, I started seeing some questions that I knew the answer to. And being a helpful person, I would pop in and try and answer those questions. And then I started seeing a question where, oh, hey, I, I read a blog post about this other day. Let me go back in my history and find that link and paste it in. Then I kept in pasting in the same link, so I started having to keep a list of them. Then I turned it into a public GitHub repo, and then it kept growing. And like by the end of the year, I was routinely answering questions in there, even though I hadn't even written any real React code yet. So Redux took off about the same time. It came out in the summer of 2015. And so it, it started popping up on my radar. I started looking at it. I started helping answer questions about it. And by the start of 2016, I was seeing the same questions being asked everywhere. Reactive Flux, Reddit, Stack Overflow, Twitter. 
And I filed an issue and kind of half volunteered to write an FAQ page for Redux. Dan said, go for it. So I did spend two or three months working on that. And that got added to the docs. And Dan gave me commit rights to the repo. Now, for a long time, I did not feel I had any right to do anything related to the code. So I just kind of helped triage issues, wrote another couple sections of the docs. About that time, Dan got hired in to work on the React team. And so he got very busy with that. And so he messaged me and another guy named Tim Dore and said, you're the maintainers now. Here's the keys. Have fun. <laughs> and it still wasn't for another few months after that that I really felt like I, I had enough knowledge or sense of ownership to really have a say in how the library ought to be run. But eventually I kind of hit that point where I, I did feel like I actually had enough knowledge to describe myself as a maintainer. And then things kind of took off from there. So Mark, previously, previous to this, did you have any open source experience or was this kind of your first where you were volunteered into it and just kind of learned it on the go? This was pretty much it. I mean, I'd, I'd been using open source software for a long time. And, and certainly I was familiar with open source culture. I mean, like I, I read Slashdot back in the day. <laughs> so I was, I, was, I was familiar with the ideas of open source. And I, I signed up for GitHub and maybe like filed a couple issues or something. But this was certainly the first time I'd ever seriously participated and honestly, prior to that, like if, if you'd asked me, I would have said, I, I will never have anything worthwhile to say. There's no reason anyone would have an interest in anything I would say. I have nothing meaningful to contribute to the community. Fair. <laughs> so what's your experience been now that you have been an open source maintainer? I know a lot of people find it to be a very thankless job. A lot of people are trying to figure out how to monetize it because it does take up a large chunk of their lives. What is your perspective on it so far? So there's there's a lot of stuff I could talk about on, on this topic. <laughs> I'm I'm lucky enough to have a full-time full-time day job, pays the bills, keeps me occupied. I, I get to work on building a couple of different apps, and that that scratches the itch of needing to go out and build something. So I, I am very fortunate and privileged to be in a position where I can do this stuff because I want to, not because I have to. And in some ways, that's actually a lot more freeing because I can work on whatever task I feel like, whenever I feel like it, and not feel pressured to try to deal with monetizing it. Uh, I, I have a lot of respect for people who are kind of going off in that direction. Like, People have asked, like, would you want to be supported to work on it? Or would you want to do this full time? And honestly, no, because it, it would feel like too much pressure. And having that money involved would make it feel like I have to do this stuff all the time. Uh, I, I did actually come kind of close to burning out in like the first half of 2018. I, I rather stupidly took on way too many self-imposed responsibilities and it, and I, I like, I always assumed I burnout can never affect me. I'm not one of those people who has to deal with that. And I, I started to kind of come close to it. And I had to very deliberately drop some of the things that I was forcing myself to do to make time for the other things that I 
did really want to make time for. So how do you balance uh, working on Redux and then working on your own um, stuff at work and then family and then yourself as well? I mean, so I, I am also, I guess, somewhat fortunate to have a fair amount of free time outside the day job. So I, I do have time that I can put into this. I, like I said, I, I will answer questions all the time. Like I, I will routinely, you know, just chill in the evening with React to Flux open and someone asks a question and I am physically compelled to go over and try to answer it just because someone has asked. The day job, fortunately, stays isolated there. So in terms of like working on things like the documentation or some actual Redux related bits of code, a lot of that tends to happen on weekends when I do actually have more free time. I, I used to sometimes try to allocate some evenings to try to work on things when I felt like it. Now that I'm working from home, like most other people, that doesn't happen, especially because once I'm done working over here in the office-like area, I migrate over to the couch for the rest of the evening. And once I'm on the couch, no, no, it's just, it's just not happening. <laughs> so I am curious about like one thing that fascinates me about open source projects is like how they come to be. Like it's funny because the the sort of chaotic nature you described of, or I guess like happenstance of how the Redux project came together is something that I've seen in other projects as well. So I'm curious, like up to today, like who is Redux? Like, is there a czar of Redux who like makes decisions for what's coming next for the project or like uh, how many people are involved committing? Like, I'm just curious, like what the actual structure behind the project is. Structure? What structure? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I'll, I'll, I'll try to kind of recap things briefly, not taking up too much time. So the initial development really only took two to three months in the summer of 2015. And it was almost entirely Dan Abramov and Andrew Clark, who, who both now work on the React team at Facebook. The Once Dan handed over the keys to Tim and myself, like, like the, the Redux core library has basically been stable since okay. 2016. There's been lots of docs work. There's been occasional tweaks. But if you look at the actual code, it has changed very, very little since, since early 2016. React Redux has gone through a lot of changes. I, I wrote a very long blog post about all the different iterations of React Redux, how it's evolved over time, and why we made those changes to keep up with how React itself has changed. For, up through version 4, Dan Abramov had done most of that. Version 5 was basically a complete rewrite of React Redux that was just randomly submitted by an outside contributor who basically did that one thing. Version 6 was basically a major rewrite. One other outside contributor and I were kind of both trying to do our own implementations to compare which one was best, and I decided his was better. Version 7 was mostly me by myself. I had a few weeks and just hacked something together, and it worked. And then the Hooks API was the result of a very, very, very long set of discussion issue threads. And again, it was basically one specific outside contributor who submitted what turned out to be the right approach that we adopted. Similarly, with Redux Toolkit, there's sort of been individual contributors who have sort of swooped in, added something, and they, they kind of move on. Redux Toolkit does now have a couple other major main people who I would, who I would say are very much the actual maintainers as well. 
in particular, there's a guy in Germany named Lenz Weber who basically owns most of our code at this point because it's written in TypeScript. And most of the TypeScript is now over my head and I don't know enough to change it. (laughs) That's actually, that was one thing that I was wondering is if being one of the maintainers for Redux, if you also were pretty actively involved with the React Redux integration, because the when hooks were introduced in React Redux, it was really cool, but I can imagine that it was such a mind shift for me as a developer using React to go into using React hooks that I'm really impressed that so many libraries, including Redux, have managed to make that migration as well. But it sounds like it wasn't an easy one. <laughs> oh, no. No. I like So like with, within like the first... 30 minutes of the hooks being announced at ReactConf. We had people filing issues on our repo saying, <laughs> React Redux hooks. Where are they? Um, and it's amazing. It, <laughs> again, like there's there's like a whole huge blog post that I wrote about the, the, the process that it took to get there. And for technical reasons that I'll skip at the moment, we had to get this version 7 rewrite of React Redux out the door first to enable us to have the technical foundation to even consider having hooks. And from there, it really was an exercise in like shepherding a giant issue thread to discuss what the hooks should do functionality-wise, what the API design should look like, technical constraints, naming and it, it was it was a multi-month process. And I, I actually ended up writing very little of the code, but I spent a lot of time trying to guide the discussion, figure out like, okay, here's a thing that was proposed. Here's why that won't work because, and, and kind of keep things on the right track. So I, I remember that time when we were, you were selecting actually the, the names of the hooks. Uh, you usually had Twitter polls going on either it should be used dispatch or use something else or something like that. So that that, that was that was really a, a tough thing, I guess. And as for the that store management and global state management thing in Redux and React in general, I guess it's, it's more of uh, a most debated topic. And uh, rather than building a more sophisticated system, it's more about thinking of the use cases and keeping community together and keeping people together uh, you know, actually making that mindset up of uh, how how we should think on on these issues and on these problems. So I, I guess it's really good that you are you are investing so much time on making that mental model and thinking on the stuff rather than doing and building something. Yeah, this this kind of leads off into one of my ongoing. I don't know. I'm not sure if it's a favorite topic, but it sure is a recurring topic. So I, I guess a couple of different points here. Several years back, uh, Chung Lo, who has been involved in the React community for a while, did a talk. I believe it was called on the on the spectrum of, uh, spectrum of abstraction. I think it was, and a lot of his point was that there's only so much meaning that you can have directly in the code itself, based on what the language itself allows you to do, and everything else on top of that is different layers of communication naming of variables, comments, documentation, conferences, blog posts, everything else. And, 
you know, part, ultimately the, the talk was a sales pitch for the reason programming language, which allows you to do more than JavaScript can. But I, I really took that to heart as a thing that applies to Redux. Like Redux is a very small library. There's a lot of stuff that we tell you to do that is not encoded in the library itself. That's one of the reasons why we have so much documentation. It's because you can do almost anything and we kind of have to tell you, no, no, these are the ways you're supposed to do stuff. But kind of going along with that, a lot of the problems that I see in the community, you know, like the greater React community today stem from people not understanding what the purpose is for different tools. And by far the biggest example of this is the argument that's been raging for the last several years of, should I use context or should I use Redux? And the problem is, it's, it's, a, it's a question with a false premise. It's like asking, should I use a screwdriver or should I use a hammer? I don't know. Are you trying to drive in some nails or put in some screws? These are totally different tools with different purposes. And so it's, I, I, I spend a lot of my time trying to clarify what the purpose is for different tools. And so this, this recently culminated in me writing yet another long blog post, which is literally titled, Why React Context is Not a State Management Tool and Why It Doesn't Replace Redux. And obviously, I'm biased in this situation. But more than anything else, I just want to try to clear up the confusion so that people can understand, okay, Here's the problems that I need to solve in my app. Here are the kinds of problems that each of these different tools can solve. Now I have enough information to make a decision about which tools can help me solve my specific problems. And granted, my no matter how many times I answer these questions, it will never stop people from asking them. But sometimes people actually pay attention and it sort of answers some questions. <laughs> Yeah, that, that, that question arises a lot of time and I've seen seen happening that a lot. I still remember that, it, I guess, React Redux 6 was based on React Context, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yep. And then... Yeah, um, and there, there were... Yeah, please. Yeah, so the, the genesis for that, so a little, little, little bit of background. Redux itself, like a Redux store, is kind of like an event emitter that only has one event. Some action was dispatched. And then it's up to the calling code to subscribe to that, get the latest state, and do something with it. So up through version 5, components always subscribe to the store themselves. Every time an action is dispatched, they get the state, run your map state to props, diff it, and see if they need to re-render. And in 2018, the React team was starting to talk about concurrent mode and suspense. And we, we, wanted to, we, we needed to get off of legacy context anyway. And so I was kind of trying to get React Redux into, into a position where it would be more compatible with what concurrent mode was and where it looked like React was going. So version 6 changed our internal implementation so that instead of having every component subscribe to the store, only the provider component subscribed. It puts the latest state into new context and then components grabbed that out of context and ran map state internally. And it worked, and it actually had some advantages. It simplified a lot of our internal implementation details because we didn't have to worry about passing down the data. Unfortunately, 
React's context implementation was really not designed for that kind of higher frequency update. And it really resulted in kind of like a worst case scenario where half your component tree would be forced to re-render just to see if there were any changes. And we, we hoped that it would be fast enough for real world situations and it wasn't. So we put it out there. We got enough problem reports that it was clear that that just wasn't workable. And so we had to turn around and go back to a straight subscription approach in version seven. But now we were actually able to use the new hooks that had just been released. So Connect was built on hooks in version seven. And then that allowed us to go, go on and make our own hooks API in 7.1. Great. I, 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 one thing that I feel is, um, uh, you know, uh, I, I would suggest if you can, uh, or my, you might have that blog post, I haven't read that, but uh, what benefits does the Redux brings in comparison to what uh, what you can achieve from context as well? So at the, the point of confusion that arises is, I can do the same thing with context and I can do the same thing with Redux uh, as well. So there is a bit of that intersection that's again uh, the, the issue. Uh, that that's the point where all of this conceptual debate starts from, and I, I guess one point, one thing, one idea to bring that debate down a little is to, to mention those benefits that Redux brings and brings to your code. Right, and so that that actually does go to what I was describing in this blog post, where it's it's not even about benefits of Redux; it's understanding the capabilities and purposes and use cases of these tools. So the the biggest misconception that I see in this area is people saying, I'm going to use context for managing my state. Now, I, I realize this gets into a little bit of nitpicking terms and semantics, but I do think it's very important to understand this kind of thing. So context itself has nothing to do with managing state. The only thing context lets you do is take one single value and it's, it's almost like sticking it in a wormhole. You put a value in one end, and then anything inside of that can reach inside and grab it out the other end somewhere deeper in the tree. It's really a form of dependency injection. And context doesn't care what that value is. It could be like a primitive string. It could be an object. It could be an array. It could be like an instance of a class or an event emitter, anything. Now, yes, one of the most common examples of using this is I have some data in React component state, and I'm going to maybe like say, take the value and the setter function from a use state hook or the value and the dispatch function from a use reducer hook, put them together and put that combined value into context. But the key thing is that you're not managing the value via context. You are managing the value with the component state. Like to me, state management is I have a way to store a value, a way to read the current value, and a way to update that value. Distribution of the value is related, but it's an auxiliary thing. Like, if I have a use state or a use reducer, I can pass down the data via props, and context never comes into play. Context is just a faster way to distribute it. So to me, context is not managing a state. 
it's an, it's a way to distribute some value, which some of the time could be state. Redux itself is just about managing state. And it just so happens that because React Redux already uses context internally, you can also use it for the purpose of accessing some value deeply in the tree without passing it down as a prop all the way. So that's where the overlap comes in. And yes, use context plus use reducer does have overlap with how you would use Redux, but then there are technical differences in behavior. I personally feel that this intersection is actually the point where especially the people who are new to this front-end world and this state management thing, I guess they get a little bit of confusion there. They started comparing both of these things. And I guess that's where most of your time goes and that's where you are always answering about. <laughs> yeah, just just trying to explain what's going on, clarify the situation and say, now that you know, you can make an informed decision. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and I think too, what's interesting is it kind of goes beyond just context and Redux now, because I feel like after a few years ago, as you said, once Redux sort of won the flux wars, it was one of the only big options out there for how you manage state in React. But now there's React Query, there's uh, Recoil, there's probably other people can name. Jotai, Zustan, Multio. <laughs> Yeah, there you go. You could have made up two of those and I wouldn't have even been able to, to tell you the difference. There, there's there's a great picture that's been floating around for a while with someone like showing off a bunch of buzzwords on a, on a slide and saying, I usually ask recruiters to tell me which of these are a tech term and which of these are Pokemon. Yeah. <laughs> with that like, confusion in mind, I'm curious, like, what is your like recommendation to like beginners, because I think it's kind of an overwhelming thing for people new to the React world when they see there's these million state management options out there. Like, what do you sort of tell people? Where should they start? Is it Redux? Is it something else? Does it kind of depend? Almost definitely not starting with Redux. So <laughs> our, our, our standard recommendation is that most people should focus on lear learning React by itself first, and then try to pick up Redux later once they're already comfortable with React. And there's a bunch of reasons for that. Uh, one is simply that there's fewer new terms and concepts to learn at once. Another is that it reduces the confusion about what is React and what is Redux. Mm -hmm. Also, like once you understand React and you've got these ideas of state and props and updates and re-renders and so on, it's, it's a lot more clear how Redux might be useful and how Redux can fit together with React. Now, I will certainly say, I, I will be the first to tell people that Redux has traditionally been overused. Redux has been shoved into a lot of apps that never needed it, used in a lot of situations where you could have just stuck with React or used something lighter weight. I, I hate the fact that I have to tell people not to use my own library, <laughs> but that's that's the situation we're in. Yeah, so, so on that, one thing I see is that, like you said, that whenever we get tools, we don't think about the problem underneath it. And let's say, if I get React or Angular or Vue, I might think, okay, this is cooler than, than the other, but I'm not thinking about the problem actually it's solving. So how, how do you think about this in terms of, okay, if I've got a tool that I want to use, how can I, maybe as a beginner, find out, okay, the problem it's solving is X. So now I know what X is, I can now decide 
that, okay, this one or that one is better than the other. I really wish I had a generalized answer to that question. I don't, but that sounds like a great topic for a blog post. <laughs> I've, I've, well, no, like seriously, like I, I, I've actually started a new blog post series late last year that I've dubbed Coding Career Advice. And so far, my posts on that topic are uh, the value of keeping a daily work journal, um, how to correctly evaluate software libraries and tools, which actually does kind of correlate to this question, how to search for and evaluate online information efficiently. And then my latest magnum opus is 7,000 words on the topic of using Git effectively. So like the the evaluating software libraries and tools does overlap with this, but it doesn't quite get to the question of how do I figure out what problems I'm trying to solving in the first place? So maybe that's something I should try to consider. However, related to this, certainly both the strength and the weakness of the React community and ecosystem is that there is no one single way to do it. You know, the, the biggest comparison between, say, Angular and Ember, and even Vue to a certain extent versus React, is that with React, you have the freedom to go and pick and choose exactly the tools that you want to use. The bad news is you have to go and pick and choose exactly the tools that you're going to use. And it does lead to a lot of confusion and decision fatigue and having to deal with upgrades and all this other stuff. So I... I will actually plug my latest attempt at an initiative. On Twitter the other night, I basically threw out the idea of what if we as a community decided to try to put together like a semi-official cheat sheet resource that says, here are a whole bunch of different problem areas that React developers have to deal with. And here are the major options in each area as far as tools and libraries and patterns. And here are some somewhat short but informative descriptions of what each tool does, what problems it solves, when you might want to use it, and when you shouldn't use it. So in the effort to get this idea that I just suggested off the ground, I created a blank repo and I set up a discussion thread uh, that was like three days ago. So it hasn't gotten very far, but there's there's been a few discussions. I, I kind of have a vision in my head for what I think this could be. And I would really like people to go off and uh, try to get involved in that discussion because I, I think it could be a really valuable resource. Like in, I, I'm kind of picturing something a little bit like the React Cheat Sheet site that Sean Wong put together a couple of years back, where it's it's unofficial, it's not part of the Redux docs, but the community has come together to put into put it, it together a list of semi-official patterns and best practices that people can look at and learn from. Nice. That sounds extremely ambitious and like something that we will definitely link to in the show notes to try and get more people aware and involved. Because I think that would be a welcome addition to the community for sure. Yeah, and and what I'm going here, what I'm what I'm picturing here is not an argument about like tool X is better than tool Y. It, it really goes along with what I've been saying about providing info on what are the options, 
what are their strengths and weaknesses, and when might you want to consider using these tools? Like, for example, I like if we if we had a state management category, which which we would, like I would probably contribute a section on when it makes sense to use Redux and not use Redux. I would want Michelle Westrate, the author of Bob X, to do the same thing for that. I would want someone like a Kent C. Dodds to talk about why you should stick with React component state and context. Uh, I would want Tanner Winsley to talk about when it makes sense to use React query. Like basically the, the authors are experts on these tools, giving you the information about when it makes sense to use that tool. Yeah. And, and not only limited to the authors, like I would want, I would want other contributors too, but that's, that's kind of what I'm picturing here. Did you work your tail off to get that senior developer gig just to realize that senior dev doesn't actually mean dream job? I've been there too. My first senior developer job was at a place where all of our triumphs were the bosses and all the failures were ours. The second one was a great place to continue to learn and grow, only for it to go under due to poor management. And now I get job offers from great places to work all the time. Not only that, but the last job interview I actually sat in was a discussion about how much my podcast had helped the people interviewing me. If you're looking for a way to get into your dream job, then join our Dev Heroes Accelerator. Not only will we help you get the kind of exposure that makes you attractive to your dream employer, but you'll be able to ask them for top dollar as well. Check it out at devheroesaccelerator.com. Well, it just, it sounds fantastic. And even at a higher level, it's like you have Create React app, you have Next.js, you have Gatsby. How do you even, because I've, I've looked and I've talked a little bit about this, but how do you even evaluate which one of those potential React flavors might be the best framework for whatever it is you're trying to achieve? So even stepping up a little bit to the, the framework level would probably be worth discussing the pros and cons. Exactly. And, and and in fact, if you even look at that discussion thread, that that right there is exactly one of the topics that I'm that I'm picturing. And there's there's even a couple of links. There was a, there was an article by I'm gonna get his name wrong. It's either Lee Robinson or Robertson, who works for Vercel on on Next, I believe. And he's put up a post and it's a little bit biased in favor of Next, but it has that clear summary of here are the strengths and weaknesses of these tools. And I think someone else in that thread also linked to a similar post that they had made. Nice. Yeah, it reminds me of, I, I know uh, like Vue.js has a thing on their documentation that they just have a doc article that's just comparison with, with other frameworks, right? Where they just straight up say, hey, here's how we compare to React and Vue or Angular. And like you said, it's going to be a bit biased because it's Vue people writing it. But at the same time, like, you know, developers are smart. They know this is on the Vue documentation site. And these are also the questions people have, right? Like people want to learn Vue, but they're also curious, well, why should I care about this? There's a million tools out there. Like what is this thing's unique place? Why should I use it? How does it compare to things that I might already know? So it's a long way of me saying I really like the idea. <laughs> oh, and, and, I, and I think they actually went out and had Dan contribute to part of the comparison section against React. Oh, nice. That's even cooler. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think that's lacking uh, a lot in the community in the sense that um, there's so many tutorials on how to use this tool and that tool. But in my, in my view, anyway, there's not enough discussion about, okay, these are the problems that made us build React. These are the issues that made us build this tool. So as a result, we've built it in this way. However, if you want to do this other thing, 
then you might want to look at this other tool or maybe going somewhere else. And I think, yeah, that's, I think, lacking a lot in the sense that um, people then end up just using a tool because it's either got the most um, downloads on GitHub or the most stars on GitHub or the author or the maintainers are quite popular. And then you get um, applications that either run too, run, run too slow, don't work quite well because the tools being used are not actually for that problem set. Mm-hmm. And there's, I think there's, there's probably a lot of reasons behind that. One is that it's, it's really easy to put out yet another React or Redux tutorial on on Medium because it, the information's out there already, and so it doesn't take too much effort for someone to just throw together their own example and post it. Kyle Shevlin, I remember, had a bit of a discussion about this sort of thing on Twitter a few months back, where he was saying like. Why are so many posts focused on beginners? Why isn't there like more more content aimed at like the medium to advanced level reader? And a lot of it has to do with audience size. There will always be, by definition, way more beginners than there are medium to advanced people. So there's a larger audience. Certainly, if you're trying to write you know, create some kind of a, a paid course or, or lesson or something. It's it's an easier target audience to aim for. It's easier to put together beginner material than it is to put together advanced material. So, I mean, there's in purely in, in kind of mercenary marketing terms, that's that, that stuff makes sense. I spend a lot of my time answering beginner questions but I also spend a lot of time doing kind of more, more of that mid to advanced level deep dive stuff myself, just because that's where my brain goes. At times, they are they are way more advanced. I mean, <laughs> well, I personally think that there is another reason behind this: is this front end world is a little new uh, as compared to many other fields that we have in software development. Mm-hmm. So when it comes majorly to the front end side, we you know. We go past six years or seven years, and I guess uh, there is a time coming in uh, when uh, there will be an audience, a larger audience for that uh, mid-level or advanced level topics as compared to what we have for beginners right now. Mm-hmm. So I feel it's, it's just, a, just a matter of time uh, that then that we'll see that growth in, uh, in the blog posts about uh, advanced topics. Yeah, I think also on that, I, I've seen as well lately, it seems that more companies are looking for more kind of senior level engineers that I, I've seen as well, in that um, a lot of the beginner jobs are not quite there as much as they used to be. And they seem to be more looking for kind of senior level or kind of more advanced developers that, that know how to maybe dig beyond the kind of surface level of all these issues. Yeah, and my own take on getting into more advanced topics with React blogs is that a lot of times the problems that we're solving are, they're difficult to recreate standalone. You know, they come from the fact that you have 250,000 rows of data that's being uploaded to your application or the fact that you have to fetch a million rows of, or, you know, a large blob or you have multiple services that have latency issues that your application is connecting to. And that stuff is not impossible, but very difficult to simulate (laughs) in a standalone repo for somebody to pull down the code and run locally, or even to see in a code pen. It's, It's more intangible than simply I need my apparent component to 
passed down state to a child component and then get updated by that child component being acted upon or something like that. So I think that's where a lot of the the issue comes is that these there's a lot of cool things being done with React and a lot of interesting problems being solved, but trying to communicate that to somebody who doesn't have you know, understanding of the project or understanding of the limitations or the systems that you're dealing with is very, very tough to communicate to somebody who's not in the day-to-day like another developer on your team or a team that you work closely with on a regular basis. Plus, a lot of that stuff tends to happen internal at a company. And therefore, it's not something you can necessarily talk about in public. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so I would like to ask one thing from Mark that uh, what, what you feel is uh, still missing in Redux. I mean, looking at the journey of past three, four years. And right now, when you look at Redux, you personally feel, uh, you know, uh, if that would be part of Redux or we could do it like this and that, that would make our work much more easier. What's that one thing that you miss in Redux right now? It's hard to limit it to just one. I'll I'll mention a couple different things. Um, So first off, something I've been working on really for a couple years now is an ongoing rewrite of the Redux core documentation, which is ironic because lots of people have said very, very nice things about our docs over the years. You know, Dan Abramov did the original tutorials. I wrote the FAQ in a couple sections. People have contributed lots of other pieces. There's a lot of good material there. But what I was seeing as of a couple of years ago was that the tutorials were getting out of date. They were written at a time in 2015 when, like, people were still wondering, like, people still knew what Flux was. Nobody knows what Flux is now. Nobody knows what Backbone is now. And the target audience changed dramatically. Like, instead of people coming from Backbone to React and Redux, we've now got brand new developers being thrown into Redux in week eight of a boot camp who barely know JavaScript and React. So certainly the target audience changed. So the tutorials needed to be updated to reflect that. Also, the way we recommend that you write Redux code has changed dramatically over the last couple of years. I've, I've taken to calling it modern Redux, and it's specifically the combination of Redux Toolkit for your logic and the React Redux Hooks API for your UI components. And writing Redux code that way is just completely different from really what you see in every other tutorial out there on the internet and everything you would have seen in a code base just a couple of years ago. So... About a year and a half ago, I I really started this effort by writing a new page that we call the Style Guide. And I explicitly stole this idea from the View Docs. And the the Redux Docs had always been very unopinionated. Like, we tell you that there's five ways you could do this thing, and now it's up to you to figure out which one you want to do. We don't care. So the Style Guide actually laid out a set of opinions where we really do think this is the right way to write Redux code. Things like put as much logic as possible in your reducers. Describe your actions as events that happened, not setter functions. A whole bunch of stuff along those lines. And I think that was very well received. 
So last year, my major effort was to rewrite our tutorials completely. So I wrote a brand new 25,000 word tutorial that I called the Essentials Tutorial. And this was designed to be kind of a high level jump right into some working code and build a real world type app tutorial. The focus is on here's the way to do it without necessarily worrying about how it works under the hood. And so that actually showed the Redux Toolkit approach as being the default standard way to write Redux logic. I followed that by going back and replacing the existing basics slash advanced tutorial sequence with a, with a rewritten version that I dubbed the Fundamentals Tutorial. So it still starts from the bottom up. Here's what an action is. Here's what state is, a reducer, store, UI. But I changed a lot of stuff. It shows the Hooks API as the default. It drops, the ter it drops Connect entirely. It drops the term Container Component completely. And it doesn't even introduce things like action creators until much, much later in the tutorial. And it does that in the context of, well, now that you kind of know how things work, here are the typical patterns that you see in a code base and why those exist. And then it finishes with, okay, now that you know how to write all this code by hand, here's how Redux Toolkit works and why you should use it instead. So... The Essentials one is high level, let's just jump straight into building a working app. And then the fundamentals is, here's the pieces, work from the bottom up, and then assemble and show why Toolkit is the right approach. So the docs work is still ongoing. I've My next set of stuff I want to do is some of the, like, the real world usage patterns stuff. Like the, the very next page I want to write is a guide on how and why to use selector functions. Uh, because we talk about those a lot in the docs, but we don't really document how to do that fully. Beyond that, um, so Redux Toolkit does include a bunch of really useful stuff that is all based on common things that people do in Re Redux apps. So, you know, configure store helps you set up the store easily, create slice, auto-generates action creators, and lets you write simpler reducers. We've got Create Entity Adapter helps you handle normalized state. Create Async Thunk helps with making API calls. But honestly, even with Create Async Thunk and Create Entity Adapter, it's still a lot of work to even go make like a typical fetch a bunch of items and put them into the store behavior. And that's always kind of been by design. Like the point is we give you some basic primitives and it's up to you to assemble the Lego blocks however you want. But like one of the things I've noticed over the last few years is that the, again, the problem space that the React community is trying to solve has shifted. In 2015, it was about state management. It was okay. Like, you know, Flux was like Facebook couldn't keep their unread messages counter in sync. How do we make sure that we only have one value that gets used in multiple places? And we want to avoid event triggers ricocheting across the app. So that's what Flux was invented for, and that's what Redux was trying to solve. What I've seen over the last three to four years is that people aren't really trying to solve state management anymore. They're trying to solve data fetching, which overlaps, but it's a very, very different thing. Like, they don't want to have to track 
loading state and like, okay, I got the item or what's my success and failure cases. They, they just want to like say, grab this data. Here's our URL. Give me back a data is loading pair and let me show my spinner based on that. And so that's why you see libraries like, you know, Apollo and Urkel for GraphQL and React Query and SWR and a little more at the REST API space. That's why they've become so popular is because they're purpose-built for this data-fetching abstraction, and they provide a really slick set of APIs that make that really simple to use. And Redux doesn't do any of that out of the box. You can totally use Redux to cache server state. You've just got to write all the code that does the fetching and the reducers that handle the loading state. And how do I store my loading state? There's like five different ways I could do it. And I have to select it. You, you have to write it all yourself. It's not purpose-built for that. And so, yes, like Tanner Lindsley keeps retweeting people who say, I switched from Redux to React Query, and I dropped 5,000 lines of code for my code base. And on the one hand, it annoys me a little bit. But on the other hand, he's totally right. Like, if this abstraction built for that purpose is put into your code base, you can drop all the code you had to write to do that. So um, I, I mentioned earlier that we've had a couple maintainers added to the Redux Toolkit team. And totally unprompted, about three or four months ago, they just decided to start writing a Redux library that has inspired by data fetching libraries like React Query and, and Apollo. Very similar set of APIs, but with some different design approaches and built on top of Redux Toolkit. And for the time being, we've actually dubbed this as a separate library called RTK Query. Obvious inspiration from React Query. And it's, it's a new API function that is actually called Create API. And you give it a base URL, and then you define one or more endpoint functions. And you say, okay, for this endpoint, like here's how I'm going to format some parameters. Here's how I want to transform the response. And then it does some really cool stuff inside. It actually auto-generates the thunks and the reducers to handle that data. If you call, if you try to hit the same endpoint with multiple different parameters, it will cache all those different fetched results independently. It can actually reference count the data so that if three components mount and they all want to load the same data, it'll only fetch that once. And when the last component unmounts, it'll wait like a minute and then wipe that data out of the store. And it auto-generates React hooks based on every endpoint that you define. So you can not only use it from a plain standalone Redux logic with no UI approach, you can drop that hook directly into your React component and just say, use fetch Pokemon's query, and it works. On top of that, it's all written in TypeScript, and all the hook names and return types are 100% correctly typed based on what you provided. So right now, we've got it out there as a separate standalone library that is technically in alpha. We don't expect major changes to the API. It's more just like fine-tuning options. 
And once we think it's ready to go, we're actually just going to take that function and the documentation and merge it straight back into the actual Redux Toolkit library and put it out as a new release. So I'm, I'm really, really excited about this. I think it's going to make people, a lot of people's lives a lot easier. I'm equally excited and I have been following that RTK query silently <laughs> and I've been looking at all that good stuff you guys, you guys are doing and I, I feel it, it's, it's really a great thing. Yeah, and again, I, I really want to give full credit to the two guys who who just sat down and wrote this, Lenz Weber and Matt Sikowski. I would not, like, I had some ideas for maybe, like, trying to abstract, like, a crud fetching slice kind of a thing. I would not have had the idea to go off and make this. Uh, I don't have the domain expertise to make that myself. They're the ones who did it. I just sort of, like, did a documentation touch-up pass and have helped advertise it. That's great. So, and you will be the one who will be writing 5,000 words blog post. <laughs> Probably, yeah. <laughs> Just wanted to give a note to our listeners that all the things that Mark has been mentioned, you can find links. We're dropping them in the show notes. So the Redux style guide, which by the way, is quite excellent. I have I've didn't actually know that existed. I kind of wish React had something like that, uh, as well as the Redux tutorials so that I, Mark I, mentioned are, are also in the notes as well. I, I will point out, that the React team is currently in the process of rewriting the official React documentation from scratch. If you follow Rachel Neighbors and Dan Abramov on Twitter, they've been working on that. And I believe they are planning to have some kind of a React style guide as part of the new doc site. I don't have concrete oh, nice. info, but based on some of the stuff they've said, I think that's going to be there. You you heard it here first. It's guaranteed to be the next version. <laughs> Well, cool, Mark. This has been fascinating stuff. It's it's kind of cool just seeing the breadth of things that you work on. Is there anything that we haven't touched on? Anything you think our our listeners should know about? Anything anything else that we haven't gotten to? I, I think we've hit most of my hobby horses at the moment. We talked about Redux Toolkit, Context versus Redux, RTK Query, dealing with open source maintenance. Those are those are pretty much it at the moment. Do you get to work with uh, Redux at your day job, Mark? Do you get to be like the expert on the team who tells them when they're doing it wrong? Uh, some, yes. Uh, certain, well, certainly within both the couple projects I've worked on over the last few years, I have ended up as our domain expert on front-end development. Uh, I've done a lot of stuff at work doing like literal just training training sessions on even just like JavaScript itself, like we've had a lot of like Java and C++ developers who've been shifting over to work on front-end things. In fact, I've, I've been able to repost some of that material on my blog. Uh, I did a session in 2019 that I, ju- that I dubbed JavaScript for Java Devs. And it was like a, a four-hour session with like 150 slides that was just like a massive cheat sheet format of modern JavaScript syntax and concepts and tools. And then I did uh, an update, updated React Redux TypeScript introduction with a bunch of slides a few months ago that's, that's also on my blog as well. So I do a lot of that training. I have been able to use Redux in some places. Other places I've said, you know what? It doesn't make sense to use it here. And okay, like in, in all honesty, I actually kind of held off on adding Redux to one particular project, almost like as a way to prove to myself that I didn't have to add it. <laughs> and then I and then I decided it finally got to a point where I, it was necessary. <laughs> nice. Even you cannot resist. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, like like without going into the technical details, like this one particular feature 
it involved kind of like a spreadsheet like editing UI. And it was like, okay, fetch an item from the server, provide the ability to fiddle with it on the client, hit save. And I did bring in Redux toolkit, but the reducer was just being passed to the use reducer hook, which by the way, is a thing you can totally do because a reducer function is just a function. So I wanted to write a complex reducer. I wanted it written in TypeScript. I didn't see the need for a Redux store. So I wrote the reducer in Redux toolkits create slice, passed it to the use reducer hook, and it, it scaled up pretty well. But now I think that feature has gotten to the point where it would actually benefit from a Redux store at this point. Nice. Very cool. Uh, are there any kind of um, features coming up in the language um, JavaScript or any kind of pro uh, tools you, you're seeing that are, are quite exciting for you and you'd like to come into? You know, certainly the the language itself, nothing I can immediately think of. Uh, I mean, I've, I've started making use of like the, the JavaScript optional chaining and nullish coalescing operators, you know, question marks everywhere. Uh, those, are, those are pretty fun. Um, I mean, outside of that, like, you know, it, I, I am interested in seeing what React's concurrent mode and suspension features will be like whenever they finally come out. <laughs> I my my enthusiasm and hype has kind of died down at this point, just because it has taken a very long time for those to be released. I I think they're I think they're probably both underrated and overrated at the same time. My sense is that once they come out they probably will have major, major impacts on how we write React apps, but it's going to take people actually seeing them in action hands-on to get that sense. Kind of like, I mean, like with hooks, people got excited right away, but then it took a while to really see how that changed how we wrote code. With suspense, there was the initial hype. Now it's, now it's a little bit of vaporware, but I think it has a lot of potential impact. In terms of how that's going to impact like Redux, I anticipate we'll eventually put out a React Redux version 8. I think that we're most likely going to use React's still experimental use mutable source hook as the basis of that new implementation in order to have more compatibility with concurrent mode. It's also, actually just a couple of weeks ago, Andrew Clark put up a new PR with the first implementation of a use context selector hook, which does promise to change how, how optimized React context is. So I'm excited to see how that will come out, and there may be a way we can use that in React Redux down the road, maybe? We'll see. Would be nice. Cool. Well, why don't we go ahead and transition over to, to do our picks. Paige, do you want to start us off? I would be happy to. So my pick this week is actually a password manager. I have been using LastPass for the last few years for free and enjoying it. And just recently got an email from them that they will no longer be supporting free accounts to use on both your phone and tablet versus your desktop. You have to choose one or the other. Otherwise, you have to upgrade and pay them money to be able to use it across both. And I am cheap and don't want to do that. <laughs> so one of my coworkers actually recommended to me an open source password manager called Bitwarden. And I, yeah, 
oh, I see that Mark is aware of this and, and likes it. So I, I gave it a try this weekend. I exported all of my data from LastPass. I imported it into Bitwarden in probably under half an hour. I had to do a little bit of formatting in the CSV to make sure that everything went incorrectly. But so far, it was extremely painless. And Bitwarden's UI is pretty good. They've got the Chrome plugin. So I've got stuff filling in just as LastPass did, and I'm really enjoying it so far. So I would highly recommend it if you're looking for a new password manager. It's been it's been really good so far. Awesome. Carl, what are your picks? Yeah, that is quite good, actually. I have a look at that. But anyway, for me, I've been looking at my writing this year again. I really want to get back into writing a lot more stuff. And I've been reading a book called Writing for, for Developers, and it's really good. Uh, it basically uh, goes, it's by someone called Philip Keeley, I think it is. And basically it talks about um, the writing um, part of it in terms of the, the mechanics and then looking at after you write and then the publishing aspect as well. And then also about how to look for um, ideas for articles and how to contribute to, um, to places that taken writing so um it's been uh, really good it's, it's 36 dollars so uh, an, an ebook and yeah so uh, i i really i really want to give us into my again this year and this really good give me some tips and ideas so if you are somebody who wants to write and you're not sure how to write about code um this book has some really good tips for you to um, learn from awesome zane how about your picks so since we were discussing a lot about redux uh, i would like to mention redux dev tool here and uh, I feel this is one of the one of the most shining part of Redux. It allows you to have you know a complete picture of how your store is behaving and how your application is going through. So I, I use it uh, for my development every day, and I feel it, it's a great thing to use with Redux. Cool. So I'm going to pick a kind of a fun one. I've been using these Bowflex adjustable weight dumbbells. So first of all, I should just say, I am no like gym rat, right? I'm not the most athletic person in the world. I'm a very casual gym goer, but with the pandemic and such, not really going to gyms. And I also didn't want to get something that would involve me having like a crazy weight set. So if you haven't seen these before, they're, they're basically a dumbbell set that's the size of like one big dumbbell, but they have these knobs that you can adjust on the side to control how much weight the dumbbells actually are. So if you're like me and you're just a very casual gym person and you're looking for some free weights that you can use that don't take up like your entire, uh, an entire room in your house, uh, they work pretty well for that. Pretty cool. Mark, how about your picks? I'm going to throw a shout out to Josh Camo. Um, Josh is a, 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 a writer and creator of training material who a lot of his material is focused around CSS related topics. He, he also does a lot of React stuff. Josh loves the idea of whimsy. Like, he, I, I think he's written tutorials on like how to do like a confetti animation when someone clicks the like icon kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. And his articles are always amazingly detailed and clear and fun to read. And he's he's been putting out a lot of new posts recently. Like looking at his blog, I see some recent articles explaining things like Z-index and style components and how margin collapses, CSS grid, a lot of really, really good posts on his blog. 
And I believe he's also been working, uh, he's, he's working up to a new course that he's going to sell on CSS um, concepts and material. And I don't, like, I personally don't need that stuff as much because I'm, I'm much more into, the, into code than design. But basically everything Josh writes is golden. And if I had a need to learn CSS stuff, I would buy Josh's course the instant it came out because I know it's going to be that good. Yes, I completely agree with everything you said. I love following him on Twitter and getting his newsletter. And he is working up to a CSS course for JavaScript developers because so many JavaScript developers hate CSS with a passion and can't figure it out. I'm not one of them. I really enjoy CSS, but I'll buy it anyway because I want to learn all the stuff that he has to offer that I just haven't had experience with. Both have that. <laughs> well, Mark, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, if people have any other questions, if they want to reach out, if they want to follow you, where's where's the best place to do that sort of thing? All right. So I, I blog at blog.isquaredsoftware.com. I am at asmarky on Twitter and Reactiflux. I am at Mark Erickson on GitHub and Stack Overflow. I I generally answer anytime someone pings me. Probably too much. So, <laughs> well, cool. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks again for for joining us today. I've had Thanks a for super... having me. Yep. All right, everybody. Until next week. See you later. Yeah. yeah bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.